home that's most oh are we good okay Okay, good. Uh, I got the mic off. I never look up there. I should look up there more often. Uh, my mic is on, however, correct? Yeah. Okay. We're back in it. Uh, if you... Uh, <laughs> um, if you have a Bible at home that is your Bible, you should be bringing this on a weekly basis, okay? Uh, just so that you can take notes in the margins, that you can write reminders to yourselves uh, and uh, keep track of the sorts of things we're doing uh, because we are going to go through the entirety of the book of Galatians and you'll want those notes in there uh, at a future point. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you or, or uh, maybe you don't have one, uh, there's a Bible in the pew that's sitting in front of you. It's the, it's the black book that says, I think, Holy Bible on it. <laughs> uh, we're in Galatians, which is in the New Testament, so go ahead and, and turn there with me. Uh, let's start in verse 15. This is, this is where we were last week, so uh, I'll try to keep this part brief. Um, in fact, actually, let's not do that. Uh, I had a, a thought as I was sitting here in the pew. Uh, where we really need to start is the very end of it, the very end of chapter 2, that is, and, and the final lines. And the final lines go like this. He says, I do not, uh, this is verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, key line here, then Christ died for no purpose, right? Then Christ died for no purpose. And of course, Paul wants to say, well, Christ died for a purpose, which should then lead us to a controlling question for today, which is, why did Christ die, <laughs> right? Which may seem like a basic question because it is a fundamental question, and there's actually quite a few answers to this. I'm going to try to explore one of those answers, right? Um, but know that there's, there's a variety of ways that this can and should be answered. Before we do get into that answer, however, just kind of starting back in 15, which is where we were last week, uh, by way of review, this is what we read. We said, uh, Paul here is, is excoriating Peter. Uh, they're, they're having a conversation back and forth. And he says, We're so, we ourselves are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. It's a mouthful. Last week I talked about the three ideas that are sitting in this uh, passage, and that is one is, is justified in justification, the second is works of uh, the law, and the third is, uh, it says here, um, uh, faith in Jesus Christ. And, and if you were here last week, you might remember me uh, nerding out just a little bit and saying, Actually, my take on this, and actually a lot of people's take on this, is that it is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, it, namely it's the cross, uh, right, and it's the resurrection. It's these two things. And, uh, and then just again, last way of review here is that justification happens one of two ways, Paul posits, either works of the law, that is like being a good Jew uh, and keeping the, uh, all of the commandments, or it happens by the cross, right? It's one of these two options. That's what Paul says. It's not both. It's just, it's one or the other. 
And then uh, I spent a long time reading through Ephesians chapter 2 to discuss the various metaphors that Paul uses to describe what does justification even mean? What does righteousness even mean? And simply put, it means making us right with God, okay? I'm not going to re-preach that sermon. Uh, You can go listen to it. I'm sure it's on uh, Spotify somewhere. Uh, So um, verse 17 continues. And it says, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, right, which is what he wants to say, uh, if we are justified, if we're made right with God in Christ, then we too are found to be sinners. Is Christ a servant of sin? Well, certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. A lot of stuff happening in here. This is not the focus of my sermon today. So I'm going to give you the Eric Gilchrist uh, two-minute version of what I think Paul is doing here. First of all, I want to kind of send you home with some homework. Uh, And that last little phrase there in verse 19, for through the law, I died to the law. The homework is find out what that means. I'm going to give you an answer, but uh, this, I'll, I'll just be frank with you. I've sat with that phrase running in my brain for like 15 years straight and uh, trying to figure out what does it mean to die because of the law, I died to the law, right? What does that even mean? And um, one way to take this is that what Paul knows is that he, he was a student of what we call the Old Testament, okay, the law. And, and he, because of it, he studied and he studied and he studied, and at some point he came to the recognition that he needs to die to the very thing he put his life into, namely the law. And we'll get to why that is the case in a minute here. But that's not insignificant, right? He's given his life over to this one thing, and he realizes, I need to die to the very thing I've given my life over to, right? Um, Before that, however, uh, he says a few things that can be um, very confusing, and so I'll just give you uh, my brief version of what's happening in verses 17 through 18. Uh, and then let you uh, continue on with your homework at home. But what I think he's saying is this. He says, if in our endeavor to be uh, made righteous, that's what, this word justify simply means to be made righteous or uh, to be made right with God uh, in Christ, we are found to be sinners, then is Christ a servant of sin? Is he a deacon? Is actually the word here, diakonos. Uh, is he a deacon of sin? Is he, is he helping us toward sin? Now, sin, I take in this case to be very specific, and that is a breaking of uh, various laws that sit in our Old Testament. Maybe, for example, uh, the the laws he's talking about, such as uh, eating with Gentiles or keeping kosher uh, or circumcision, these kinds of laws. And he says, uh, if by being uh, in Christ, I'm breaking those laws, right, which you are, which he was, and, and Paul, uh, Peter was too. If I'm breaking those and I become a sinner, 
in that way? Well, then, is, is Jesus a deacon of sin? Is he, is he moving us towards sin? And, of course, his answer is no. And his whole point is, well, no, I, uh, I tore this whole system down. In fact, he didn't tear it down. Jesus tore down the system of the need to keep these laws. And so he says, if I rebuild what I tore down, well, then I suddenly become a transgressor to the very thing that was torn down. And then he goes on with this riddle, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. All right. If you're confused, it's okay. Just kind of set that aside for a moment. And let's get on to the main show. The main show of this whole passage, if you ask me, is in verse 20. Galatians 2.20 holds more weight in this one verse than good grief. I just, I don't, I don't know how much more you could pack into one verse. The significance of this cannot be understated. Before we get into it, however, one more uh, review for you. A few weeks ago, and this will become very important here, a few weeks ago, I gave you uh, my top five uh, events that happen in Scripture. Do you recall these? If not, it's okay. Uh, number one was the Garden of Eden, right? You got Adam, you know, that, that event happening. Number two, I'm going to number them so as to be able to appeal to them. Number two was Abraham, right? Paul's going to use Abraham a lot in the chapters that come. In fact, if you just kind of peek on down in, in chapter 3, Abraham becomes the main figure. And, and so this is, uh, I'm also laying groundwork for, for what's to come in future weeks here. Abraham and the covenant, specifically the covenant with Abraham, this idea of a covenant is, is central to what I want to talk about today. Number three uh, is, is Exodus 19 and the covenant that God makes with Moses and, and Israel, right? It's the Sinai event. It's the giving of all the laws, right? It's number three that becomes also central to what Paul is talking about in this book. Number four is the covenant made with uh, King David. Uh, and this is the one where David is said, uh, uh, is said to have uh, an heir to the throne into perpetuity, into eternity, Right? Uh, this becomes central to everything that happens in the New Testament. It plays maybe a little lesser role uh, in uh, our book here today. And then the fifth event is one that is projected in the Old Testament. It's the New Covenant, and the prophets make promise to it. And then it's achieved and it's realized in the New Testament, right? And so the New Testament... I've said it a thousand times, but means new covenant, right? And Jesus in the upper room, today uh, we're going to take uh, the bread and the cup and we're going to celebrate what Jesus established in that upper room, which is the making uh, and, and signing and sealing of a new covenant, right? All of this becomes important in what Paul is arguing for here. Because he's going to ask the question, why does Jesus die? Right? That's where we started. Why does Jesus die? And the answer, as I've already said, 
is manifold. There's lots of answers to it. And if there's one answer I want to explore a little bit this morning and I want to kind of put before you and say, this is why, is because we needed someone to open the new covenant, right? We needed somebody to to offer the, the way forward into this new way of being. And this is exactly what Jesus does on the cross. It is the beginning of this new new way of being, and new way of relating to God. And so there was the old covenant, which is the covenant that gets a study. This is number three on my list of five, right? Uh, number three is there at Sinai, and God makes a covenant, makes a deal with Israel and says, I will be your God, you'll be my people, and here's what I expect from you. I expect you to keep all the laws. They, of course, break the covenant. And then Jesus comes and he establishes a new covenant. And then it's worth asking, what are the ground rules of the new covenant? How do we get into that, right? Paul's going to make it very clear. He's going to say, first and foremost, the new covenant is established because, as I've said, of the faith of Christ, right? The cross itself establishes the new covenant. And then you and I enter into the new covenant as we become members in Christ. We, we, we uh, believe or have faith in Christ. And so there's this, this two-faith part to it all. Christ is faithful and he asks us to be faithful as well. gets us then to verse 20. And as I was preparing for today, I was, um, I've read this passage, I don't know, hundreds of times, right? You've probably heard it too. Uh, And there was something about the silence of my room the day that I read it. There was something about the quiet. There was, uh, there was just something different that day that it, uh, some of the words rang as if I had never heard them. Have you had this experience before? I hope so. It's probably the voice of God speaking to you in that moment. And so I read this passage this week, and here's what I read. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't know what you heard there because there's a lot to hear actually, isn't there? There's a lot going on in that that one verse. Here's what I heard. Um, Paul is living in a, an ancient Roman time. It's a, a kill or be killed kind of world. Uh, in some ways, it's like a man's man's world, right? And there's, there's nothing uh, mushy or, um, you know, uh, like soft about it. 
you have to be ready for battle at any moment. It's, that, it's like the, the Wild West in a way, right? And I don't take Paul himself to be too much of a sap. And so when I read Paul conclude this passage saying the following, I don't know why, it just hit me different this time than it's ever hit me before. He says, The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me. Who loved me. Right? Paul uses the word love, and he makes it ever so personal. He doesn't say, and, and he loved us, and he loved humanity, and he loves his people or his children. No, Paul makes it ever so personal. And he says, he loved me. I hope you can hear that with different ears. We say these things so often, right? But if you can just put the... Put some of that down for a minute and hear Paul just pouring out his heart in a way that like opens up a spiritual autobiography that we've never seen uh, in this world. Maybe short of perhaps like David can do this well in the Psalms. You know, he's the only other person I can think of in the scriptures who might say something quite like this and recognize that Jesus dies and gives himself over because he loves me. And this got me thinking. <clears throat> what is it about us that causes Jesus to love us? Right? Why does Jesus love you? Why does Jesus love me? I love things in this life. I love my wife. I love my kids. I love this church. I love uh, silly things like uh, the house that we live in or uh, the backyard or plants. Uh, you know, like I love a lot of things. And they all have value to me. The things you love have value, right? And the things you love have different maybe levels of value, and so it's worth asking, when Jesus says that he loves me, and that when Jesus says that he loves you, what does Jesus find in you that is of value? And to turn it one more, what do you find in you? <laughs> what do I find in me that is of value? What do I value in myself? And what do I value in you? There's lots of bad answers to this question, right? You know where I'm going with this. Maybe you don't. If you put your value in certain things, so let's say your job, right? Uh, let's say I put my value in my job. I'll go ahead and use myself as an example here. And my job requires a lot of... Uh, uh, a lot of things. Uh, and then, uh, m most notably right now, what I'm stumbling to do, which is to speak. Uh, it requires me to speak. Um, and it requires me to use my brain. 
And a day may come where I have a stroke and I can't speak anymore. Am I suddenly not valuable because I can't do that thing? Or you, whatever your job is, like let's say that something were to happen and you can't do that job anymore. Are you suddenly less valuable in God's eyes, in Jesus' eyes? Is he looking at you and saying, I love you, Eric, because you know what? You are a great public speaker. <laughs> I don't think so, right? But there's other things that you do this to as well, and, and I do as well, right? Oh, I'm valuable because, what is it? You make people laugh. You're funny. Uh, you're the life of the party. You're the smart one, right? Or, or maybe because you play the trombone really well, or, or you're great at sports, right? What is it for you? Like, what is that thing? And does Jesus look at you and say, you know what? You are great, and I love you, and I value you because you are an amazing trombonist. The answer, of course, is no, right? No. I was talking to somebody this week uh, who said that their work with um, folks with disabilities changed their mind completely uh, on what is valuable in human beings, right? And so the, this person or people that she was working with uh, that had these disabilities, by our, our culture's standards, uh, have very little value because they, they offer very little to the world, right? What can they bring to the world? Turns out not a lot in the way we normally value things as a society. And there are some sections of our society that say, well, when that happens, we'll just go ahead and ship them off somewhere, somewhere or maybe it's just time to uh, end their life completely. And the more you dehumanize somebody, the more that possibility becomes a possibility, right? I mean, this is what the Nazis do to uh, the Jews uh, in, uh, in Germany, is, is they create them into monsters and once they become monsters, they're no longer human. Well, and then at that point, they are valueless and probably best to be exterminated. Why does Jesus say, I love you and I value you? There's uh, a lot here. I, I think the easiest and the best answer that I can simply offer to you is that there is something inherent within you, the individual, that represents who God made you and put his God stamp on you and said, this is Eric Gilchrist breathed in my image. Here's what happens, though. So if there's a, an Eric Gilchrist breathed in the image of God, and that's who I am, what happens over a lifetime is a, a crust 
this is how I've started thinking about it all week, uh, starts to appear over the surface of who I am. And I create these layers uh, of another version of me. It's the me I want to project. It's the me I want to be powerful. It's the me I want to have certainty. It's the me that I want to make sure that people like me. It's the me that uh, I want you to know uh, that I'm competent and capable of doing what you've asked me to do. Uh, it's the me that with my family, I, I want them to, to love me and to cherish me. And it's the performance side of me. But then also, sitting over all that, is a me that's it's not so great, actually. It's a, it, it's, it's a me that we, we often think of as, as the sin me, right? It's maybe the coping mechanisms that I've developed over time uh, where uh, I lash out in anger. Why? Because someone's gotten a, a little too close to the inner me, to the me that actually Jesus loves, and, and I don't feel safe in that moment, and so I lash out in anger. And my anger is a manifestation of what? Of sin. A sin that still has a tendency to rule my life. If we come back to the passage here in verse 20, Paul says something incredibly wise and powerful. He says that I have been crucified with Christ. Right? I have been crucified with Christ. And I have to think that here the I he's talking about is that version of me that is not me. It's the, the projection of the person that I want everybody to think I am because I'm trying to keep safe the real me underneath there, the God-stamped me. And he says that, that me has to die. It has to be crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but now it is Christ who lives in me. And the true me, the, the, the God-breathed me, the Christ-breathed me brings life to that person who is waiting to wake up in the world and to show up in the world. And so it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by the faith I have in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. And so there's these two intertwining questions that go hand in hand. And the one question we've already been talking about, which is, what is it about me that God loves that he would be willing to give himself for me? And why, question number two, do I need to be crucified? I think we've already gotten our, our way down that road uh, far enough. Where I would want to back up now and just simply say is this. Who I am in this world and who you are in this world is because God created you to be that person. God did, does, and always will love that person. 
and he wants you to fully be that person. And in the power of Christ, you can be that person. But Paul, Paul does something radical. He recognizes something that even his own Jewish brethren didn't recognize. And it takes him years and years to figure it out. He says that the law that we had, right, that number three uh, moment, right, that law that we had, that's not enough. Sin management and and knowing what the rules are and trying to keep the rules, that's not going to get us there. That's, that's, that's going to manage the sin, but it's not going to take care of the sin. And the conclusion that Paul comes to is, it may not be a radical conclusion to you, because we've been living in this Christian era for 2,000 years, but I promise you it was a radical conclusion for him, and it, it's something that we often forget. It's that our human nature is such that we are ruled by sin. Sin is a power that needs an outside force to come in and to break. And Paul, the vision I keep having is, is, is the, this you that's sitting underneath an encrusted layer of sin. And there's nothing you can do about that. And you need somebody to come in from the outside and to, to break that layer of sin and to fill you with life again. This, this is what the New Testament, the New Covenant offers. When Christ is standing in the upper room and he says, I am going to, uh, I am going to break my body for you. I am going to shed my blood for you. I am going to offer a new kind of covenant with you. He is inviting us into a new way of being, a new way of relating to each other, even a new way of relating to ourselves. And recognizing the sin that has ruled our lives doesn't need to anymore, and that he has broken us free from it, and is calling us out of that darkness and into light. In a few moments, we're going to take... uh, the cup, and we're going to eat the bread. And as we do, I I would just simply remind you of everything that we've been talking about today, which is that we are no longer in that old covenant mode where we have to work, and we have to work, and we have to work, and we have to work our way into some kind of good graces with God. Instead, what we find is that in this new covenant model, Christ has broken in for us. He has done the work for us. He has laid the table for us, and he simply invites us to come and to eat and to rest and to take what he has given for us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your Son. Jesus, we thank you for offering your body and your blood of the new covenant that we might be made one with God. And Holy Spirit, We give you thanks for empowering us on a day-to-day basis that we might live in the image of Christ. God, prepare our hearts right now. Breathe in us anew. 
let us lay down the swords that we hold that keep the world at bay, but also keep you at bay. And let us instead, Lord, let us tune our hearts to your Holy Spirit in this moment. Let us listen to the ways in which you desire to speak to us. And we ask that you speak clearly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.